Welcome to the Fastest 5 Minutes. This is our second in a COVID-19 coronavirus-focused podcast, because let's face it, that's what's consuming the industry right now. We're heartened by a lot of stories about people moving heaven and earth to get their people working and to safe locations, and we hear from clients and friends that they continue to be in good health, and that is our primary concern here. But obviously, as with any law firm, we've got a business to keep our clients informed on the latest and the moving parts affecting the entirety of the American economy, especially as it relates to government contractors, and that's the focus of this Fastest Five Minutes. Peter, as far as I can tell, there's no bigger topic right now than what industries are critical, what industries are essential, and which industries are impacted by stay-at-home orders that we see all across the country in states and municipalities. What's the latest from your perspective in that area? Thanks, David, and greetings to everyone. I hope this finds you safe and well. I, I think, David, you're exactly right. We're seeing a patchwork of executive orders across the country at the state, local, municipal level focused on stay-at-home, shelter-in-place, safe-at-home, quarantine. They're called all different things, but they basically are designed to accomplish this physical distancing, reducing the density among the employees that are working still. And what that means is that in some states, there are very strict orders that virtually all businesses must shut down. There are others that have many exceptions. One of the most common exceptions and this essential business designation turns on whether a company is considered part of a critical infrastructure. That's a defined term out of Homeland Security. That memo, which is incorporated into many, but not all, of the state and local orders, has been amended now three times. So that's a little bit of a moving target. Most recently, it was amended over the weekend. So a lot of companies are, are waking up to try to figure out what does that mean for their business. Now we're seeing some of these quarantine rules, which talk about crossing state lines. So what to do when you have employees in one state crossing state lines where there's a quarantine in place. So a lot of moving parts there to figure out, okay, are we essential? Are we not? What if part of our facility fits in that category? Other parts don't. How do we reconcile that? And then, of course, a huge question is, what do the orders say about, okay, if you are essential and you're going to continue to operate, what steps must be taken in addition to CDC and OSHA guidance for the workforce that, that remains at the facility? And those are really important questions. They vary by state. And now we're starting to see a pivot to some enforcement questions where local enforcement authorities are starting to show up at facilities to ask, are you essential? What are you doing to comply with these various orders? We're aware of several of those site visits that took place yesterday. We expect a lot more than this week as this question emerges about how to balance the essential business functions, employee safety, physical distancing, et cetera. So those are some of the hottest questions and topics right now. David, over to you for things you're seeing in that area, too. Yeah, I think you got it exactly right. I'm getting three questions rather routinely. One, are we essential? And you covered that exceptionally well. Two, how do we deal with these new and, and largely emerging quarantine issues, especially crossing state lines? I mean, our office is in Washington, D.C., 
I live in Maryland. Other people live in a different state. I mean, just think about that, where your workforce comes from. How does it impact your supply chain? That's becoming a very urgent issue. And then the third bucket is what categories of time do we need to account for if we can't work because we're not allowed on site, if our work is delayed, if we have people who don't want to come to work, for example, is that reimbursable or not? What sort of buckets of time do we need to have to support our later requests for payment or adjustment or delay? Those are the big three questions I'm getting. Does it square with the ones you're receiving, Peter? Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. And on some of those questions, really, we're talking about largely traditional government contracts claims and changes analysis albeit applied in a completely unprecedented way, but whether it's a compensable change, how notice needs to be given, but we're also starting to see some new avenues of relief, and, and one of them is really in the, the CARES Act itself, which was the stimulus package that was passed and then signed by the president on Friday, and there are some things of, of interest in there for contractors. David, do you want to talk about what's top of mind coming out of that? Sure, and that's got to be Section 3610. And just before we get into it, first and foremost, the Stimulus Act, as we probably all know by now, obligates billions and billions, indeed trillions of dollars for economic stimulus broadly and billions of dollars across multiple federal agencies to make sure the government keeps moving, the economy keeps moving, or at least is ready to move again when people can get back to work. And one section in it, Section 3610, gives the ability of federal agencies to tap into those billions and billions of dollars to pay for basically idle time, a certain more limited set of idle time caused by government contracts employees unable to work on, and the language is a federally approved location, right? And using examples of federally owned or leased facilities or sites, and when the facility closes or other restrictions. There's still a little looseness I'm not entirely sure, and this just needs to be borne out over time, I'm not entirely sure if it's going to apply to a contractor facility doing federal work, but there are limitations of up to 40 hours of idle time. Because telework isn't available, the job is so essential that it can't be done off-site. Think, I don't know, national security-focused, classified work, you name it. And there's a nice six-month window, and the fun sunset at the end of September 2020, but to allow people to recoup and government contractors to recoup money for idle time and sick time spent because of COVID-19 related concerns. So we're getting a lot of questions of, do I qualify? How do I apply for this? The answers are, well, we probably likely qualify. You can read the text of the section. We help people through it fairly routinely. But how do we apply for this money? We don't know yet because it's not covered in the CARES Act. Ultimately, what I've been telling contractors, and Peter, I'm curious to hear what your discussions have been. All right, segregate your time, segregate your costs, be able to support it and show what you've done to mitigate and address some of these damages, if anything, like try to find other work outside of government facing. Is it working? Is it not? And be able to push your contracting officer. Can we tap into these funds? Can we get paid sooner? What you have to submit is the same as if you're going through the changes clause analysis or more traditional analysis in all likelihood. But it might be a bucket of money available without consideration. You don't have to give anything up where you can get paid faster rather than going through the request for equitable adjustment, potential claim, potential board work. We're hoping this speeds money to affected government contractors. 
Yeah, David, that's, I think it's a great summary, and I agree with what you said. I do think that watching really closely for guidance, whether informal or formal, is going to be quite important because agencies are going to implement this differently, I suspect, and it will mean different things to different agencies. So I think it's a great summary. I couldn't agree more just because the way this works, right, the contracting officer is our day-to-day decision maker on contracts. Clients interact with contract officers' reps more often than that. But the decision on releasing these funds and how much and how is going to be at a level much higher up than contracting officers, maybe up to senior procurement execs and agency leadership, departmental leadership. So there's a lot to be determined, and I can't emphasize enough your point that this will be implemented differently amongst different departments, unless or until consensus emerges later. Agreed. And before I turn it over to you for any final thoughts and to close this out, I just want to mention a lot of companies have questions on the Defense Production Act. There's a lot of swirl around that, and it's getting a lot of, of activity. We have a number of resources available on that, and we're happy to talk to anyone that's got questions, but certainly it has become a very important and interesting topic for many of our clients. David, over to you for any other thoughts. Oh, the only last thought I have, since you mentioned the DPA resources, I think we should also mention that our colleagues and partners are putting together lists of the latest quarantine orders and who needs to self-sequester and the like and trying to keep that current. So if that becomes important, please do reach out. And with that, we'll end where we began, which is with a wish for everyone's good health and continued well-being. We're obviously here to help with any business and legal needs going forward. But first and foremost, we hope you all stay safe and healthy. This has been the fastest five minutes. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 202-624-2627. And Peter can be reached at 202-624-2807. Be well. The Fastest Five Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mori LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast.